0: Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website EvidenceBasedErrata.com. Let's start tonight by talking about Mars. Perseverance has landed successfully. This is so exciting. Let's once again listen to the moment that the lander arrived safely on the red planet. UHF is good. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. Perseverance or Percy is a few inches longer than Curiosity and nearly 300 pounds heavier but like Curiosity it's nuclear powered and used the same sky crane apparatus to descend to the planet's surface the crane was deployed from a rocket powered a rocket powered stage which crashed which crash-landed intentionally at a safe distance from the landing spot. And the men and women at Mission Control and in all of the uh, areas that helped create and launch and land Curiosity have so much to be proud of. Um, And so the main um, Mission Control is at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in um, California. And they're just They're so, um, I I know that they're over the moon, but I'm just over the moon at how well that they all work together and really helped create this amazing, uh, new mission that is going to be launching off. Now, the landing ellipse for, uh, Percy was just 4.8 miles long and 4.1 miles wide, This is compared to 4 miles by 12 miles for Curiosity. And, of course, they launched and landed this rover all during a global pandemic. Now, the rover has already beamed back its first images, and initial health checks were all positive. And so, yeah, it was so cool that just seconds after it landed, you could already see a picture of the Martian uh, landscape where it was. Now, as I said, everything looks good. The power system looks good, Mars 2020 Deputy Project Manager Jennifer Trosper of JPL said during yesterday's briefing. The batteries are charged at 95% and everything looks great. So what exactly is it that Percy is setting out to do? Its primary mission will be to hunt for signs of ancient life and to collect and cache samples for future research to Earth. For future return to Earth, I should say, and research on Earth. (laughs) The lander will use the drill at the end of its robotic arm to collect around 40 samples from different sites, which will be sealed into special tubes. The tubes will hopefully be picked up and returned to Earth by a joint. NASA, ESA, or European Space Agency, mission as early as 2031. Mars' sample return is the planetary science endeavor endeavor of our generation, Bobby Braun, Director of Solar System Exploration at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, noted in a pre-landing news conference. It's ambitious, it's challenging, it's a scientifically compelling goal that over decades, we have been working toward, Franz said, and it's right there, right within our reach. Now, the rover has an instrument called MOXIE, or Mars Oxygen ISRU, experiment designed to generate oxygen from Mars's atmosphere, which is currently 95% carbon dioxide by volume. If it were to be scaled up, and it actually works out while it's there on Mars now, it could help future astronauts to be able to use local resources in order to generate oxygen, which, you know, is a little bit important if you want to be able to survive on a planet that doesn't have an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And we can't forget about Ingenuity, the proof of concept helicopter that will be deployed if it's successful, it will allow NASA to send out more helicopters in the future, this time with instrumentation. So Ingenuity at the moment doesn't have any instrumentation. It's just a proof of concept that you can have a uh, helicopter attached to a rover and deploy it successfully and have it be able to actually uh, move around in the atmosphere. And of course, we have to be able to figure out if it can move around in the atmosphere because it's so much thinner and different from that found on Earth. So there won't be the same aerodynamics as there would be on Earth. And so again, if this is successful, it could be turned into a usual project. We could put sensors on them and use them as science as science platforms and as scouts. NASA Acting Administrator Steve Zjerzik said, aerial reconnaissance by Rotocraft could allow rovers to drive more auto- autonomously and drive faster and longer on the surface, he added. So basically, if you had a copter in front of you and that was scoping out the uh, terrain, then you would know whether or not there was something coming up that you had to go around and you could go a little bit faster rather than slowly inching ahead all the time because you don't know what's up ahead. And so the helicopter will conduct test flights towards the beginning of the mission, uh, soon after Percy has had a chance to be checked out and It also needs to be able to move out of the way of the um, helicopter, but that's gonna take a couple of months. So they've just landed, and so they're gonna take their time and run through all the systems, make sure everything that needs to be unpacked, so to speak, unpacked successfully, that everything deploys correctly, that all of the systems are working, and you know there is a time delay on everything. It's not as much as it is for, say, new horizons, uh, which is much further out in the solar system. But there is still, I think a seven minute delay um to Mars, and so they have to be able to work through all of those system checks. But once that is all done. Once we have patiently waited for all of the checks and balances and uh, diagnostics to have been run, the rover is expected to take a 15 mile journey over the next few years. And so, once again, one of the things that these rovers do is that they move real slow. Um, They are not built for speed, Uh, they do not. They will not be winning any races anytime soon. They're meant to very carefully and ruggedly move across a unknown and uneven and potentially hazardous landscape. And so they, you know, it can take them years to get just 15 miles. Now, it will also sport two microphones to capture the sound of the planet. This would mean that the rover is equipped to capture the first true audio from the surface of another planet. Having a sound of another planet is another way we can start to realize that it feels familiar, Nina Lanza, team lead for space and planetary exploration at the US Department of Energy, of Energy's Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, told space.com. It will add a dimension that will make Mars more of a real place to us. Now this is actually the third time that NASA has tried to record the sounds of Mars. In 1999 the Mars Polar Lander crashed during its touchdown attempt. Now the Phoenix Lander had a microphone built into its descent camera but it was never actually turned on due to concerns that it might complicate the deployment and landing of the actual, uh, lander. And so there was some concern and so they just decided not to do it and it worked out good because obviously, um, Phoenix landed and had a successful mission, but unfortunately we didn't get to hear it. And so let us all hope that the mics will work and that we'll finally be able to hear another planet. This is going to be another incredible opportunity to really blow people's minds, musician Jason Achilles Mazelis, a member of the EDL Mike team, told Space.com. If we get that audio and that video and we're able to pair that together, that's going to be something nobody's ever seen before, said Melis, Video from another planet with sound, that's going to be awesome. <laughs> and so uh, the EDL mic is actually an off-the-shelf instrument built by the Danish company DPA Microphones. Apparently it has something called a digitizer puck that allows it to be hooked up to a cell phone via a USB interface, something the team realized could also be used to connect it to the rover's computer system. The digitizer puck was the eureka moment that was the eureka that we were looking for, Dave Gruel the lead engineer for the EDL camera and microphone subsystem explained. Gruel and his team only needed to build a mount for the camera on the rover's body and install a screen to keep Martian dust out of the diaphragm, which is where the sound actually comes from. Now they also removed the digitizer's puck oh, the Digitizer Puck's electronics board and secured it, you know, better than it would be for a terrestrial use uh, and made sure that it could be bolted firmly to the rover. Because the last thing you want to do is have it just fall off. (laughs) If it's working throughout the entry, descent and landing phase, and it makes it to the surface successfully, I think it's going to keep working for a period of time, Grohl said. But of course, eventually, the planet's cycling of frigid temperatures will likely break it down, or if not that, even though they've uh, put a filter on the mic to um, decrease the amount of dust that might get into it, there's a lot of dust on Mars. Mars is a desert planet. Um, It is very much a planet that You know, I mean, a couple of years ago, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, you know, there was a global dust storm. So dust and microphones are not friends. Um, So I don't expect that this microphone will last for the entire mission, but it's still very exciting uh, if we can get some good um, audio from it before uh, the planet manages to take it out of commission. But of course, even if uh, this microphone fails, the rover has a second microphone built into its SuperCam instrument suite atop the robot's head-like mast. The SuperCam will study rock and soil from a distance using lasers. And so basically the lasers will vaporize a sample of the rock and that vapor will then be analyzed by the SuperCam's cameras and spectrometers. Now, the mic would record the snap that will be generated by this vaporization, which can give researchers useful information about the rock, including information about the rock's hardness. It should also help us tell if a rock target has a coating. Rock coatings are of a special interest because such a coating is a record of the history of the rock's interaction with the environment and are often associated with past exposure to liquid water. They're also, at least here on Earth, a good place to find microbes because the coating provides protection while also allowing access to the environment. And so basically, that's kind of the deal, is that a lot of what Curiosity is trying to do is that it is trying to find signs of life and so you might be able to see that there is evidence of microbes still extant on these surfaces of the rock and that would be pretty spectacular. So, trying to find a rope rock coating is really important on Mars because it tells you, first of all, there's probably a history of water interacting with that surface, Lenza said, and then that's another place to start looking for the chemical signatures of life. In addition, the microphone will also help researchers probe the thin, carbon dioxide-rich Martian atmosphere in order to improve modeling efforts. It can operate for around three and a half minutes at a time which will allow them to capture Martian wind, the crunch of the rover's wheels, and other sounds. It could also listen in on the sounds the rover is making internally, which would help them diagnose any potential issues. And the mics may also pick up some of the whirring noise as ingenuity deploys. Now, because of the thin atmosphere, a lot of that sound isn't really going to be carried because it's in the higher registers but it might still be able to pick up some of the lower register um, emissions from that launch who knows what a dust devil might sound like as it goes by the rover who knows what interesting things you might detect as the parachute inflates in the martian atmosphere and what that sound might be like gruel said who knows what we're going to learn he added It's that unknown that adds even more excitement to the whole thing. But of course, again, uh, for the moment, we are going to have to wait and see uh, exactly what we are going to get. But hopefully, at some point, we will have sound from Mars. And that is pretty darn exciting. Okay. So let's talk now about the landscape Perseverance will be exploring. The lander has touched down in Jezero Crater, which was the winning spot from a five-year expiration of 60 candidates. Now, NASA decided on Jezero, which is Slavic for lake and is pronounced with a yes sound rather than a hard J sound even though a lot of people, including people affiliated with NASA, still say uh, Jezero. It is actually pronounced Yezero. Um, It's even technically, I think, supposed to be pronounced more Yezardo, but pretty much everyone is saying Yezero. Um, And so better than Jezero, (laughs) to be true to what it should actually be called. Um, And so uh, NASA decided this would be a good candidate spot for exploring how water periodically ebbs and flowed, ebbed and flowed on the Martian surface. Scientists believe Mars lost its water because the atmosphere grew too thin to support a water cycle but around 3.5 billion years ago, the area appears to have been a river valley, which may have once harbored life. Scientists see evidence that water carried clay minerals from the surrounding area into the crater lake, NASA representatives wrote in a description of the site. Conceivably, microbial life could have lived in Jezero. Jezero." See, it's very easy to, to mispronounce. If so, Signs of their remains might be found in lakebed or shoreline sediments. Scientists who study how the region formed and evolved seek signs of past life and collect samples of Mars rock and soil that might preserve these signs. And so, Yezero Crater is around 18 degrees north of the equator of Mars. And again, it has a variety of geological areas for Percy to explore including that ancient delta, sand dunes, and the ancient Lake bed. A delta is extremely good at preserving biosignatures, evidence of life that might have existed in the lake water or at the interface between the sediment and the lake water, or possibly things that lived in the headwaters region that were swept in by the river and deposited in the delta. Mars 2020 project scientist Ken Farley of NASA's JPL said during a conference held back in November of 2018, the lander has touched down on the bottom of the crater and will head for the delta to examine sediments before checking out the ancient shoreline and finally climbing up to look at rocks on the rim of the crater. At least that's the plan for now. Um, And so it's very exciting. These rocks would have been hot shortly after the impact and may have hosted hot springs, scientist um, Ken Farley said. In a December 2018 flyover video based on imagery collected by Mars orbiters, deposits from these springs would be another target in our search for possible ancient life on Mars. So that is very exciting. Now let's switch over to some of the more fun stuff. So uh, NASA is pretty good at uh, combining both really interesting hard science and also managing to have fun um, and do a lot of symbolic stuff. And I really like that. So I wanted to talk about the uh, sort of symbolic, uh, more um, fanciful things that were also that are also on Percy. And so the first thing uh, is that basically this is in the spirit of Pioneer 10 and 11. And so uh, those have the plaques with the, you know, with the man and the woman and DNA and the solar chart and things like that. And so in that spirit, the rover has a plaque with a line art depiction of the Earth, the Sun, and Mars joined by lines of Morse code reading explore as one. It also contains three microchips carrying 10,932,295 names from NASA's Send Your Name to Mars campaign. Now, full disclosure, my name should be there somewhere, and I hope that some of yours are too. I'm pretty sure that I mentioned it at the time. In addition to the names, there are also 155 essays from students who made it to the finals of the rover naming contest, which as you may remember was won by Alex Mather, a 7th grader from Virginia. Also on board is a tribute to healthcare workers who have been fighting the coronavirus as the lander launched last July just after the virus began to spread across the United States. An aluminum plate on the left side of Percy features a caduceus, that serpent wound around a staff, uh, the typical symbol for the medical profession in the U.S. Uh, And on the top of that staff is a picture of the Earth, and there's a little orbit line around uh, for the orbiter, um, I mean for the lander, because I'm pretty sure it um, it did a couple loops around the Earth to get up to speed, and so it shows that. It's actually really a nice design. Uh, next is the Mast Cam z Now this is a fully functional camera, but the casing features a statement. Are we alone? We came here to look for signs of life and to collect samples of Mars for study on Earth. To those who follow, we wish a safe journey and the joy of discovery. Now, Joy of Discovery is actually written in a variety of languages. And the casing also features images, again, much like uh, the Viking um, landers. And so it has images of cyanobacteria, a fern, a dinosaur, a man and woman, Interestingly, a kind of sci-fi designed rocket. It doesn't look like a rocket that would take off from NASA, but it looks like the kind of rocket you might find on a child's toy. Um, And I'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, but it's interesting. It also features a copy of the inner solar system and an image of the double helix of DNA. And so I think that the reason for that stylized depiction of a rocket is that there's a whole kind of, um, there's a whole, uh, branch of thinking about how to, uh, use symbolic language to explain things, especially to someone who might not speak the language that you spoke. So, um, Place where they are really interested in that is at nuclear waste sites. And so, because they're going to be radioactive for a very long time, just having a sign that says danger radiation isn't necessarily enough. And so, uh, they've had artists and um, linguists looking into how to create pictographs. And I think that that's a little bit of what's going on here because, you know, when you think of a rocket. Uh, I think that you think more of that kind of child's toy version with the fins and the very pointy top than you do a NASA rocket um and so I think that just makes sense and but it is kind of delightful. It's a really cute picture of a little uh sci fi version of a um, spaceship or rocket okay so uh. Next up is a special coin made out of helmet visor material in a nod to geocaching. The coin is part of the calibration target for the Sherlock, scanning habitable environments with ramen and luminescence for organics and chemicals instrument. (laughs) The coin is etched with the address 221B Baker Street in London, And the coin is embedded in a plaque, which also includes a slice of Martian meteorite and four other samples of spacesuit material to help researchers see how they hold up on the Martian surface. And finally, the supercam also features a slice of a Martian meteorite, which made a round trip journey to the ISS before being returned by Perseverance. Okay. Let us take a break now and we are going to move on. We're still going to stay in Mars for a while, but we are going to switch to talking about some of the other spacecraft that have arrived recently in Mars um, or at Mars, I should say. And so, yeah, please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week, presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps do not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are talking about Mars. So, Mars is clearly the place to be these days, though it's not without peril. 49 of 49 missions before this January that have attempted to reach and deploy at the planet, only around 20 have been successful. That's less than half. And so, in addition to the Mars Polar Lander, which featured a mic, but also crashed, uh, some of you may remember the crushing loss of the Mars Climate Orbiter back in 1999, though of course, in many ways, that was an unforced error, as well as the crash in 2016 of the European Space Agency's Schiaparelli Mars Explorer. This month started off strong. The United Arab Emirates Al-Amal or Hope probe successfully entered orbit on the 10th, making it the first Arab probe to reach another planet. And we've already gotten a beautiful picture of the planet from the probe's Emirates Exploration Imager or EXI, which features Olympus Mons on the along the terminator, as well as a nice view of the three volcanoes of the Tharsis. The probe also has an ultraviolet and infrared spectrometer, and will continue to examine how particles escape the gravity of Mars and detail the mechanisms of global circulation in the lower atmosphere. They hope to understand better how, for instance, dust storms at the surface affect atmospheric loss in the upper atmosphere and how weather systems around the planet relate to one another. Now, part of this is that the nation is trying to kickstart its science and technology sectors in order to have a backup plan, as most of the country's wealth is currently tied up in oil, which I think is a good plan. I'm, I'm all for that. And so they've they've got big plans. They plan to launch a moon lander in 2024, and... They have developed a century-long plan, uh, currently referred to as Mars 2117, with long-term exploration goals. And so they're, they're going all in, and I think that's really cool. Um, I think that the more people are looking into space, the more countries that do it, the better off we are going to be. And so I think that's very, very good because it will force us to talk about it. Um, And hopefully that talk will be to civility rather than fighting, but uh, let's just hope for the best. (laughs) And so speaking of that, uh, China's Tiawan-1 probe has also entered the planet's orbit. This probe has two components, an orbiter and a lander. Now, this lander will probably land sometime in May or June once a landing site has been identified in the region known as Utopia Planitia. The rover will be solar-powered and is meant to investigate surface soil characteristics and potentially water-ice distribution with a ground-penetrating radar. It will also feature a panoramic camera, sounding radar a magnetometer, and particle detectors. Now, T.O.N. means Questioning the Heavens and was launched on July 23rd, 2020. And it's China's first independent interplanetary mission. Part of the reason why it's independent is because uh, we have kind of a new Cold War developing between the U.S. and China. And um, there is definitely some talk that China is trying to uh, kickstart its program to Mars because it really wants to, uh, the U.S. has kind of uh, claimed the moon, quote unquote, uh, even though China did launch um, some landers to the far side of the moon recently. And so I think that they're trying to make their stamp on Mars even though we're already there and again this is unfortunate uh, because really we should all be working together but you know I think it is also important for us not to just work with China without having any kind of um, stance on the kinds of things they do and of course you know I will be quick to point out that America is no saint and that we don't really have a great high moral ground. Uh, but again, we're not at least at the moment actively uh, committing uh, ethnic genocide, ethnic cleansing um, like the Chinese are. And there's no two ways about that. And so as much as I clearly want to talk about the sort of cool science things they're doing and as much as science has had this kind of idea that it doesn't engage in politics. And so that's why NASA and Roscosmos uh, worked together all throughout the Cold War um, and things like that once they started to have an actual, like, um, relationship with one another. They didn't start out working together. Um, But they eventually, you know, formed a um, bond which they, you know, kept out of politics Um, until a little bit recently, but as we've talked about, Roscosmos has kind of had a bit of a meltdown. I don't even know what's going on there these days, which is why it's really great that we now have our own independent space um, flight ability. Uh, Even though I still do not like uh, private space enterprise, I think it's very important that we don't have to rely on Roscosmos right now. because they're having some, some issues. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna keep on talking about Mars, but we're gonna switch now to some more standard papers rather than talking about landers. And so research recently reported that water vapor has been observed escaping high in the thin atmosphere of Mars. And so, of course, most of the planet's water is currently frozen in the planet's ice caps or buried underground, but some of it is vaporizing and leaking from the atmosphere in the form of hydrogen, according to new research by an international team, including Manish Patel, a senior lecturer in planetary sciences from the Open University in the UK, and Oleg Koroblev from the Space Research Institute in Moscow, Russia. The hydrogen was detected by analyzing light passing through the atmosphere using the NADIR and Occultation for Mars Discovery, or NOMAD, instrument aboard the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. And so that was actually launched by the European Space Agency and Russia's Roscosmos. This fantastic instrument is giving us a never-before-seen view of water isotopes in the atmosphere of Mars as a function of both time and location, Patel explained. Measuring water isotopes is a crucial element of understanding how Mars as a planet has lost its water over time and therefore how the habitability of the planet has changed throughout its history. And so the data was recorded between... April 2018 and April of 2019, and it sampled a broad range of events, including a the global dust storm, as we've talked about, the evolution of water released from the southern polar cap during summer southern summer, and a regional dust storm, according to the paper published in Science Advances. NOMAD was able to provide vertical profiles and global maps of water, both H2O and HDO, which is hydrogen, deuterium, and oxygen. And deuterium is basically the heavy element of oxygen. Uh, heavy isotope of oxygen, I should say. Water ice and dust using high-resolution infrared spectrometry, spectroscopy, I should say, sorry. The researchers found three instances of water at very high latitudes around fifty miles above the planet's surface in the region where mo- water molecules are photodissipated, disassociated, meaning the molecules are broken apart by photons and begin to escape into space. They found that Rayleigh distillation, where lighter isotopes evaporate faster than heavier ones, appeared to be the driving force of the deuterium hydrogen ratios observed. And so again, deuterium is the heavier isotope of oxygen. The three instances occurred during the global dust storm, southern summer, and the observed regional dust storm, as we noted. Ultimately, this suggests a way in which much of the water once present on Mars may have been able to dissipate over time, leaving the two main reservoirs of ice at the poles. And so one place where... A lot of thought has been given to uh, water, perhaps being on Mars, is in association with what are called reoccurring slope lineae, or RSLs, which are dark streaks which have been formed, which have been observed forming on Martian slopes. And so, a new study published in Science Advances, Advances um reports that they believe that the streaks are caused by a combination of melting ice and Mars' salty subsurface permafrost, which combine chemically to create a liquid-like flowing slush. This slush then causes landslides, which result in the dark, narrow streaks being observed. Now, this slush would be too salty to sustain life, but it may have been a different story, again, 2 to 3 billion years ago. Note study lead author Janice Bishop, a senior research scientist at the SETI Institute. The landslides may have been no- the landslides have been known about for about a decade. NASA's high rise or high resolution imaging experiment camera has imaged small landslides called slumps and the RSLs, which they believe are features of landslides. Previous studies suggested the lines were related only to a reaction between underground chlorine salts and a large amount of sulfate. Their new research expands this reaction to also include the permafrost, which would result in a highly salty brine. The original idea that sulfate and salt crystals lead to expansion and migration of the salt crystals through the soil would be a very slow process, according to Bishop, due to the cold temperatures, which can hit minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. But in recent releases from high-rise, changes have been seen occurring in just a few months, so the researchers turned to the lab. They combined sulfates, chloride salts, ice particles, and volcanic ash from a few places that can stand in for the surface of Mars. McMurdo Dry Valleys in Antarctica, Israel's Dead sea, and the solar, the payanales in the Atacama desert. (laughs) The mixture was frozen at minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit before melting as temperatures increased. Under cold temperatures, the chlorine salt and sulfate separated and the ice water moved between the mixture, almost like passing a soccer ball down the field, according to a statement this movement of ice water led to soil degradation and landslides. A similar interaction happened between the sulfate and chloride moving through the Mars mimicking soil. Rainya Gu, a, chemist, a chemistry professor at the University of Colorado Boulder who was not affiliated with the study, explains that the new study solves the, quote, replenishment problem, where, which means that they wouldn't previously been able to determine where new sources of water come from to cause new slumps and slides. With this new hypothesis, the salts and water don't need to be recharged seasonally because most of the action involving the brine is in the subsurface, she explains, and the new images show that most of the salt and water does not travel downhill with the landslide of dry grains. added. Now, we're almost certain that there is no life on Mars now, but similar conditions, particularly in Antarctica, feature shrimp and other small sea creatures. We don't know yet how the early habitable Mars transformed to modern Mars with a harsh, cold, and dry environment, Bishop added. And so, you know, this is, again, one of those places where we might find that there used to be life. Except. (laughs) Uh, So there's that. But two other recent papers have actually suggested that the streaks we're observing are not linked to chlorine salts at all. One paper suggests that the signals of perchlorates we have found from the CRISM or Compact Reconnaissance Imaging Spectrometer for Mars aboard the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has a known artifact where at a small enough pixel level around less than 0.05%, basically the data is smoothed out in a way that creates phantom spectrums of perchlorates. An absence of perchlorates would preclude the previously described hypothesis because it involves having that um, chlorine salts. And instead, a team from the Institute of Space Astrophysics Lab of the French National Center for Science Research at the University of Paris Sud suggests that the RSLs are caused by wind. The team suggests that the flow activity occurs on a wide range of seasons and, slopes, and slope orientations wider than previously thought, which suggests that the water is less likely caused. Instead, they suggest that the RSLs are caused by the removal and deposition of bright dust above darker underlying surfaces and are connected to seasonal dust activity. It turns out that much like getting to Mars, figuring out what's going on, on Mars is also hard. And so basically we're relying on these instruments to take these really detailed measurements. And sometimes there can be issues. And so if there is artifacting in the data, then it really changes how you would hypothesize about things. And so it's not necessarily that that first study is deliberately wrong or that they aren't paying attention to this other research, but when you have data that you're already looking at and you're going on a particular assumption, then you develop theses based on that subject. Um, or on that data, I should say. And so, um, unfortunately, sometimes someone comes along afterwards and says, um, actually, that was just a scratch on the lens or something like that. And so, that is, you know, unfortunately, an integral part of science wherein you will find people having to go back to the drawing board because they found that there was an erroneous signal in the data or something like that. Let's finish up Mars by discussing the first evidence of hydrogen chloride, a colorless glass on Mars. Right now, we're not sure why it's there, but hypotheses include volcanic activity or a previously undetected chemical cycle tied to dust storms. A new paper in Science Advances documents the first detection of hydrogen chloride, and its associated chlorine chemistry in the atmosphere of Mars. This is the first time that a new molecule has been found on Mars since methane was discovered in 2004. While methane is a possible biosignature, chlorine is very much not, but it still requires an explanation for how it's being created. Kevin Olson, a co-author of the study and a research scientist from the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford, notes that there are two possibilities, either the gas is being produced by magmatic activity below the surface or through a complex chemical interaction between surface dust and atmospheric gases. Either will be a brand new function happening on the planet. If evidence grows for the proposed chemical cycle linking minerals in the surface dust with gases in the atmosphere, this will be the first known direct link between the surface and atmosphere, other than ice formation, explained Olson in an email to Gizmodo. On the other hand, if, if some sort of venting is determined to be the source of the hydrogen chloride, such as volcanoes or other magmatic outgassing, then this is almost this is among the first evidence of active geological processes that have been that has been found. Now the latter idea may be bolstered by the Mars quakes that have been detected by the insight probe which suggests some sort of unknown geological processes under the surface And if it's the former idea this will be a win for the ExoMars trace gas orbiter as it's something that it is designed to detect. The TGO is meant to detect rare gases such as water vapor, nitrogen dioxide, acetylene, and methane. The team detected multiple spectral features, a pattern of characteristic strengths and positions, which allowed them to identify uh, hydrogen chloride unmistakably. Oleg Korblev a planetary scientist at the Space Research Institute in Moscow and the first author of the study noted, we even recognized two isotopes with different atomic weights of chlorine, 35 chlorine and 37 chlorine, he added. The team does not suspect volcanism, but rather an interaction between hydrogen chloride and water vapor, and especially water vapor from the South Pole ice cap which leaks water vapor into the atmosphere and the hydrochloric acid, the hyd- sorry, the hydrogen chloride. I, I listed it as HCL. And every time I have to, my brain has to remember what that chemical formula, what that, what that stands for. It's not a formula, but um, so the hydrogen chloride was detected in April, 2019, late summer in the Southern Hemisphere. On Earth, near the surface, it's formed from evaporated seawater, and it's linked to acid formation. And in the upper atmosphere, it plays a role in ozone destruction, said Olson. It is also emitted from volcanoes, which is why we have been looking for it on Mars, a sign that there is active volcanic activity. But we don't think that volcanoes are the cause of what we've seen. We think there is other atmospheric chemistry at play. Our observations are of the effects that the seasonal freeze-thaw cycle of the polar ice caps have on the atmosphere and climate of Mars," added Olson. Another piece of evidence is the hydrogen chloride signatures were detected during an epic dust storm in 2018 that sadly ended the Opportunity rover's journey. The storm caused a temporary greenhouse effect pulling water from near the surface to higher altitudes. On the other hand, volcanic gases like sulfur dioxide have not been detected on Mars, further weakening the idea that the hydrogen chloride might be generated volcanically. Oddly, the signatures don't last for long. Our understanding of how hydrogen chloride behaves doesn't explain this, said Olson. It won't condense and freeze out like carbon dioxide or water, It shouldn't break down that fast, and there's too much of it to move somewhere where our instruments don't measure. We expect there to be interactions with solid dust and ice particles, but how hydrogen chloride can be removed from the atmosphere as fast as we see it is a mystery, he said. The team's next step is to comb through TCO data gathered during 2019 when there was no global dust storm. They'll study how the transient readings of hy- hydrogen chloride are related to dust and atmospheric vapor and how gas mineral reactions might be leading to those to these signatures of hydrogen chloride. Once again, Mars is hard and it's weird. <laughs> we have to remember that even though we compare it to Earth, it is a unique place with unique challenges and mysteries. All right. Um, I'm just going to touch on this uh, next story for a second, and maybe we'll talk about it a little more next time. But um, I wanted to point out something that makes me grumpy. <laughs> so a headline that I saw um, recently included the phrase, Alpha Centauri A in Earth's backyard." And so I know I'm a bit of a broken record about this, but we, need, we would need such a different level of technological ability to travel faster in order to make traveling to any other star even vaguely possible. With our current technology, for instance, the New Horizons probe, it would take 78,000 years to reach the Alpha Centauri system. And so even though it's very cool and I would love to do it, I think that every time someone says, oh, it's just, you know, 4.3 light years away, humans are bad at understanding long distances. And to say that, it just makes me frustrated. It's a personal thing for me. I think we should be a little bit more clear about how far away these things are. Um, But the upshot is, is that they found a signal that suggests that there is a habitable planet around Alpha Centauri A, which is a sun-like planet. And if found to be true, that planet is between one and two AUs away from that sun-like star. And of course, the Earth is one AU around, away from um, its star. Now, this planet is actually uh, Neptune-sized, but it might prove to be someplace very cool to aspire to explore someday in the far future. All right. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgeon by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash An ...important mission for them to give people hope. And, and there we see them again, clapping and, and just having such a image. good time. Because this mission, this mission was eight years in the making. They have been working just so hard to make this happen. And Katie, you're saying the first images are coming in? I think that's the first image, that's what they're cheering about. And what would they be seeing? Mars. Go for it. <laughs> 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 Thank you for that. I've personally never seen Mars, I feel like I've seen Mars. Hey, this is Marlock and if you want to hear some of the best in BGM and nerdcore, I got you covered. On Press Start to Continue, you can hear an eclectic two-hour mix of geek music. We've got covers of classic game themes in any number of genres, theme shows, interviews, and so much more. Visit StartToContinue.com to learn more, or just search for Press Start to Continue DLC on your favorite podcast app. Press Start to Continue. Nerdy music for the masses. Press Start to Continue A member of Planet Podcast Network.